right, go ahead and take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. And remember, last week we ended at the baptism of Jesus. And not only did we see the baptism of Jesus, but we saw God make the statement, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And while God was not well pleased with Israel after their baptism through the Red Sea, like we read about in 1 Corinthians, uh, God was pleased with Jesus at His baptism. Israel, what we see in the Old Testament in the story when God separated a people to Himself, these people were absolutely not acceptable, not at all. They were too sinful. God is showing us something. We talked about this a while back, but it definitely needs to be repeated because uh, people should be able to preach about Matthew chapter 4 without acknowledging these things. We've got to make sure that we get the word out on this, but they were not acceptable. And so Jesus Christ, He came, He was acceptable, and we're about to see Him go into the wilderness and face the exact same temptations that Israel faced when they went into the wilderness, but we're going to see a very different result. And so, not only was this the baptizing of Jesus that we saw in Matthew 3, but it was also the anointing of Jesus. Because that term Messiah literally means anointed one. And we see in, in that story how the Holy Spirit came and lighted upon him. And the Bible says in John 3, 34, For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. So that event was very significant. I mean, that was God literally testifying through Israel to Israel about who Jesus was, that he was the Messiah. It was John, a prophet of God, also testifying that he was the Messiah. Israel had no excuse to reject Jesus as the Messiah, none whatsoever. In fact, you have like your John Hagee types today that acted like, you know, Jesus he didn't really come as the Messiah for Israel at that time. You know, he came, ended up coming more to be a Messiah for the Gentiles, you could say. But one of these days he's going to come again as the Messiah for the Jews. And that's absolutely ridiculous. Not only did he come as the Messiah, God literally had a prophet, first one over 400 years, point him out to Israel. God himself showed up and pointed him out to Israel. They saw the Holy Spirit come on him. They saw the anointing of the Messiah by God. They heard God speak, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. They're going to see Jesus do miracle after miracle. They're going to see Him raise people from the dead. They're going to see Him die on the cross. And then they're going to see Him raised from the dead. Folks, there is no reason for the Jews to not accept Jesus as the Messiah. He couldn't have done any more than He possibly or than He did to show that he was, in fact, the Messiah. And it was it was a huge, huge deal when they rejected him. But people ignore that, again, uh, because you got to ignore these facts if you're going to have bad eschatology and you're going to teach you know, that they are still the chosen people. And so, again, while we're going to get some repeat from that uh, message I preached a month or so ago, uh, we just, we can't, it's so important. We cannot cover this chapter without acknowledging what was happening during Christ's temptation in the wilderness. But I want to hit this quick because I really want to focus on the second part of the chapter. But it says in verse 1 that uh, then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted 
of the devil. This was necessary because he has got to be, for him to be a faithful high priest, he's got to know what it's like. And isn't that important? You know, ladies, why is it that we don't, you know, our husbands, you know, we always kind of get mad at them because they don't know what it's like to be a woman having kids and the hormones and nursing and all that kind of stuff. And you know, we don't know what it's like. And we never know, will know what it's like. But you know what? Isn't a blessing you have other ladies you can talk with that have been through it with you. And you can talk about uh, how difficult it is and how big of a pain in the neck your husbands are and all that kind of stuff, right? But uh, And so Jesus, for him to be able to be that merciful high priest, so he's not just wanting to kill us all the time for being so rotten, he faces temptations just like we did. And so he's able to be that high priest. And it says in Hebrews 2.10, For it became him. For whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage, for verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. He's making up for their sins, for all the things that they did wrong. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. And so we would do well to, and this is important as we go through Matthew, okay, where while the Gospels are so rich with teaching, with literally sermons from Jesus, with parables, and we're only going to spend one week on each chapter. I do want to point out certain things, though, that I think are very important that we get a hold of, because in John 21, 25, it says, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written to everyone, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. So notice, Jesus did a lot more on earth than even what the scriptures record. There's a lot of things he did. Now, that does not give us license to go picking up extra biblical books and somebody writing a book and it's like, well, you know, this is what I think happened. That doesn't give us the right to do that, but this is what it ought to cause us to do. Say, so, okay, well, if he did many things that even the world itself couldn't contain the books, why did they choose the things that they chose to write? And they chose the things that they wrote for a reason. They're not chronicling everything Jesus did during his ministry. He did a lot of things. They walked with him for three years. He lived over 30 years on this earth. There's a lot of stories I'm sure that could be told but notice what else John said in chapter 20 in verse 30. He said, In many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in the book. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. So while John's gospel was something that had more of a universal audience in mind, and it was written too, he's like, I'm going to write the things that people need to know to be saved. That's what he wrote. He wrote what people needed to know to be saved. That was his focus. What do people, what, what I need to write, what stories do I need to tell to make sure 
They know the things they need to know and believe the things that a person needs to believe to be saved. That was why he wrote the things that he wrote. It's important we understand that. Well, in Matthew, Matthew also had an audience in mind. Matthew clearly had a more Jewish audience in mind. And so the stories that he's writing, the details he's bringing up, the Old Testament scriptures he's referring to that Jesus fulfilled, this is all relevant stuff for a people that he's writing to because you know what? He wants them to believe on Jesus Christ too. And so just like when we are talking to a Catholic, there's certain aspects of the gospel we might focus on a little more. Uh, Matthew, you know, he's focusing on certain things because he's clearly writing to a Jewish audience. So he's going to bring up things that are relevant to them. So all these things we're seeing in the scriptures, they're not there by mistake. They're, they're targeted. They're there for a reason. And it's like Matthew, something we're going to see as we go through the book, it's like he's doing a comparison and a contrast between Jesus and Israel. It's like he's showing, that he's showing the difference. Hey, Israel, you are not acceptable in the wilderness. We know our story. We know how we provoked God and how we messed up and how we gave into temptations. We know that, but watch what Jesus did. Look at what God said about Jesus after his baptism versus what he said about us. When we came, which they all do what God said about them, or how God felt about them when they came out, out, um, out of Egypt. And so in verse 2, it says, And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was an afterward and hungered. That'll do it. Israel never went 40 days and 40 nights without food or water. They didn't, they didn't go that long, but Jesus did. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And so Jesus overcame the desires of his flesh and obeyed the word of God. Deuteronomy 8.1 All the commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do, that ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers, and thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep His commandments or no. And He humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger. God let them hunger. Now, that is, God didn't let them starve to death, but He did let them get hungry. And folks... We need to get a hold of that. There might be times in our life where God lets us suffer a little bit. God might let us go through some things. God might let us go through some trials. Because you know what? Especially as Baptists, we talk pretty big sometimes. I'll always be faithful. I'll always stay true to the Word of God. You'll never be able to stop me from living for the Lord. You won't be able to stop me from sowing. Watch out. God might come along and say, we'll put you to the test. You know what? We'll let you go through some hard times. We'll let you face some of these things alone. You think you'll do this by yourself? All right, let's let you do it by yourself. Better watch out for that, that kind of stuff. But understand, if that day comes, and when those days come where God puts you to the test, you know what? You need to be like Christ, and you need to be obedient. He humbled them. God sometimes does that to His people. He humbles them. Why? To prove that we are what we say we are. To prove it. I was like, what, does God not know? I don't think it's that God needs to know as much as maybe sometimes we need to know. Maybe everyone else needs to know. So keep that in mind that whenever we're going, whenever you're going through something, you know, whenever you face that humbling, you better take it. You better keep being obedient. But he humbled thee, he suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, 
which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. And so, obviously, Jesus chose that verse for a reason. Hey, you know, it's like he's telling Satan, that worked on Israel, but it's not going to work on me. Because guess what? The things that God wanted to test Israel with and they failed, you know what? I'm ready. And not only that, I've got the scriptures that were spoken during that time. And he threw it right in Satan's face. And I think that's awesome. And there are, there are many examples of what Israel did when they were tempted with hunger. Numbers 14.20 says, And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have tempted me now these ten times and have not hearkened to my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. And so notice what it says in Matthew 4, 5, Then the devil taketh him up into a holy city and setteth him on the pinnacle of the temple and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hand they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. So Israel... They were tempting God when they're basically demanding that God feed them and God do something for them. It would be like your children coming to you and saying, Dad, if you love me, you'll give me $20. Really? You're going to tell me what I have to do to prove my love for you? You know what? That's, that's bad. Okay? That, that's not good. That's very disrespectful. And that is, they're, they're tempting you as a parent when they do that. And when we go demanding things from God... Like that, well, Lord, you know, fine. If you want me to keep on being faithful, you got to do this and this and this. Fine, you know, Lord, if you want me to keep tithing, then you have to make sure after I give this tithe that you, I win the lottery. You know, that's not how that works. Okay? You don't tell God what to do; He tells you what to do, and you do it and you shut up about it. That's how that's how it's supposed to work. And Israel, they're supposed to be obeying God, but they wanted to treat God like a glorified Santa Claus, and that's not right. And so Jesus, when he said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God, uh, he's, he's was quoting Scripture. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.16 said, Ye shall not tempt the Lord your God as he tempted him in Massa. And that's referring to Exodus 17, verse 1. And it says, And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord and pitched in Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide you with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? Hey, when you are demanding things of God, that is, that's tempting Him. We're not supposed to do that. And the people thirsted there for water. And the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, take with thee out of the elders of Israel, and thy rod wherewith thou smotest the river, take in thine hand and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, 
because of the chiding of the children of Israel, because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord not among us? And so, uh, that passage that he, refer, that he was referring to, I believe that was Psalms, it was in Psalms 91. We might look at that here in a little bit about tempting God. But um, Israel did not have faith that God would take care of them. Their calls were, it was not a call just in, in faith. It was a call in demand. They were doing it in a provocative way, trying to force God to prove himself and to you know, get God to obey them. That is not how things are supposed to work. And so, verse 8 says again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he said unto them, him, all these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. This is from Deuteronomy 6.13. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him and shalt swear by his name. Ye shall have no other gods of the gods of the people which are round about you. For the Lord thy God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord thy God be kindled against thee and destroy thee from the, off the face of the earth. Ye shall not tempt the Lord your God as he tempted him in Massa. So, again, Jesus is quoting all the scriptures related to Israel violating the same temptations that they faced in the wilderness. And so what we just saw here, we see the first Israel failed, the second succeeded. Israel in the wilderness literally made a golden calf and worshipped it. When God said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And so in Hebrews 4.15, when the writer of Hebrews is writing to the Jews, to Israel, he says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And these are references to their temptation in the wilderness. Everywhere they failed, Jesus succeeded. And notice this in verse 11. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Now this is, I think this is more important than we realize. Again, because people have had an Israel-based prophecy they have missed so many things about prophecy. They've missed so many things in the Scripture. I, I, I love you know, what Pastor Baldwin says about a Jesus-based prophecy. Just keeping that focus, it really makes a big difference. And so when you think of a Jesus-based prophecy, okay, all of a sudden, you start noticing a lot. But look what it says in Psalms chapter 91. Let's turn over there. Psalms chapter 91. Because it's Psalms 91 where, that Satan happened to go to because Jesus is using Scripture against Satan. So Satan decides to try to use Scripture to tempt Jesus. And so, and so, But let's look at this passage because it's very interesting that Satan went here. I, I, I don't think this is a coincidence. But it says in verse 1, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, and Him will I trust. Surely He shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. Now, often people will read these passages and they will kind of apply them to themselves. Like if you're right with God, nothing will happen to you. You will be taken care of. I heard a lot of people use this passage during COVID as if Christians are immune from 
sicknesses and pandemics and things as long as we're right with God. Hey, guess what? We're not. Okay? We're not. But look at what it's saying right here. It says, He shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust his truth, shall be thy shield and thy buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Do we apply this to ourselves? And some will say, well, no, because obviously bad things happen to Christians. They've been happening, bad, bad things have been happening for the last 2,000 years. In fact, Christians have been in tribulation for the last 2,000 years. So what people often say that's almost right is they say, well, this was something that was to Israel. And technically, this was a promise to Israel. But notice there was a condition on it. Okay? The condition is obedience. You didn't just get all these promises if you were from Israel. They had to be obedient. If Israel would have been obedient, they would have been protected from everything. There wouldn't have been a barren woman among them. They wouldn't have had the pestilences, diseases. They wouldn't have had droughts and all these things. God would have blessed them. God promised that to this nation that if they would keep his law, basically paradise is what he promised them. But they never got it. They never got it. You know why? Because they never were obedient. So let's keep reading this. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked, because thou hast made the Lord, which is thy, my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Thou shalt tread upon the lion. So those are the verses that Satan quoted. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and the adder, the young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. I wonder why Satan didn't quote that verse right there. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he hath known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Now let me ask you, was that ever fulfilled with Israel? No, but you know who I do think that got fulfilled with? Jesus. Because even though Jesus went through all of this horrible temptation and was obedient, what do we see as the result of his obedience after that? What does it say? Angels came and ministered to him. Why? Well, what do you think happened to him after going 40 days, no food? Being in the wilderness. Listen, Jesus was a man. He needed food. He, 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 these angels came and you know what I believe? I believe they took care of him. They fed him. They got him back to health. They protected him. God delivered him. God, God protected him. Any of us would have died from that. But because Jesus was obedience, was obedient, God protected him. And you know what? One of these days, he is going to tread down the lion. Satan, that lion who walked, he walked about as a lion, as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's going to trample that dragon, that old serpent called, called the devil, the adder. You know, every one of those things that mentioned there, God calls the devil all of those things. And who's going to defeat that lion? Who's going to defeat that serpent? Who's going to defeat that dragon? Is it going to be Israel? No, it's going to be Jesus Christ. He is the one that's going to do this. So this passage, Psalms 91, is prophetic and it was fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And it's almost as if Satan knew, hey, you're trying to be the one to fulfill this. And he's trying to tempt them with that verse. 
it's just, sometimes you wonder how much does the devil know about the scripture? But it's like, man, this is about Jesus. Jesus was going to fulfill this. Satan's kind of misusing it. And I do. I, I think Satan stopped at that verse for a reason. Because it's like, if, if Jesus does fulfill this verse in the proper way, instead of the way Satan's trying to tempt him into doing these things, then he's probably going to fulfill verse 13 too, where Satan's going to get his. And Satan is going to get his. Amen. Thank God for that. So, again, we have dispensationalists today just constantly. I was reading again. I, I, was, I was looking back at a book that I read a while back, uh, you know, showing how the church didn't replace Israel. And I was just reading all these prophecies that he was going to about Israel, proving God's not done with, done with Israel. And I'm thinking, that's fulfilled in Christ. Jesus did that. Does he not realize who Jesus was? Does he not realize, you know, Jesus, he obviously he made atonement for our sins on the cross. Obviously, that was the main point of his life. But everything he else, everything else he did mattered, too. And they are recorded in the scriptures for a reason. And it's like we just ignore all these things. And I'm telling you, it's it is so enlightening just any time the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. Go back and don't just read those verses. Read the whole passage. It is absolutely enlightening when you do that. And so definitely a good habit to get into. But God never did any of these things with Israel that we see in Psalms 91 because Israel never obeyed. But when Jesus obeyed, God took care of him in a supernatural way, just like he promised he'd do with Israel. This was another promise fulfilled through Jesus and not the Jews. And so we also need to understand, as Christians today, we have not been guaranteed any physical protection. Okay, we're, we're not immune from that. Christians can get shot. Christians can get sick. Christians can get cancer. We can get all those things. But, but, I'm, gonna, I'm probably be talking about this a little bit on Sunday, and this is something I, that uh, I'm, I'm wanting to do a lot of teaching on because it's important we get a hold of these things. We have been guaranteed spiritual protection, though. Okay? We might suffer on this earth, but we will never experience the second death. We we can definitely make spiritual application to all those promises. We have those things now. We are protected spiritually. We are secure in a supernatural way. I mean, Satan can't do anything to us spiritually. We cannot possibly lose our salvation even where we can fail in our flesh, in our spirit. We are completely secure. And we do. We have every one of these promises. We have them right now in the present spiritually and we also okay this is something too that i'm wanting to talk about where i believe our the amillennialists are wrong they will often rightly point out how we have all these things spiritually where some of these people are wrong though is the fact that we also will one day have them physically as well and and i and i i've got some teaching coming where i plan on on proving this because you do you have your your amillennial crowd that make everything in the present. And, but when it's in the present, we only have all these things spiritually. And they kind of deny the physical later. In the premillennial world, we, only, we want to make it all physical and all about the future. 
missing out and not enjoying the fact that we have all these things now spiritually and we should be enjoying those things. We should be taking comfort in the fact we have these things, that we have these things spiritually. And so uh, it's important, really, there's, there's truth on both sides and there's error on both sides. When the premillennial denies the present spiritual application, they're wrong. When the amillennial denies the future physical uh, application and fulfillment, they are wrong. I believe, I believe both, uh, uh, there's, there's truth and there's error on both sides. We want to make sure we get it right uh, across the board because these are very important things. So look at verse 12 of Matthew chapter 4. It says, Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into the prison, he departed into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt at Capernaum, which is upon the sea coast, in the borders of Zebulun and Nephilim, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun, the land of Nephilim, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And I want you to make a mental note of Galilee of the Gentiles. The people which sat in darkness saw a great light. And to them which sat in the region in shadow of death, light is sprung up. Now, just something to keep in mind when it comes to prophetic language. That it is. It's not always literal. Did the people in that land see a great light, physically speaking? No. But is Jesus Christ not the light of the world? Is he not a great light? Spiritual? Yes, he is. Absolutely. And one of these days, he's physically going to come back and he is going to destroy the devil with the brightness of his coming. But... Again, this Bible says that this prophecy was fulfilled when Jesus went into that area. This is from Isaiah 9.1. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Nathali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. So we have Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the nations is the same thing. Gentiles, nations, and heathen, those are all kind of used you know, simultaneously or, or interchangeably. And it goes on to say, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. So remember, everything recorded is there for a reason. It meant, so it mentioned John being cast into prison because he is showing too Jesus is picking up right where John left off. And this, and this is just another amazing thing about John too, because it's like John, I mean, Jesus literally admits that he is the greatest man born among women. He goes and he faithfully serves the Lord. He fulfills his role as that forerunner to the Messiah. He preaches repentance to Israel. He preaches the kingdom of heaven. He points out Jesus as the Messiah. And then what happens shortly afterward? He gets thrown into prison. And he dies in prison. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene. And two, even before John gets thrown into prison, some of Jesus' disciples were originally John's disciples. And instead of following John, they're following Jesus. And the Jews, they're, they're coming to John. It's like, hey, everybody's following him now. Now, if he was like most Baptists, and he was John the Baptist, he would have started calling Jesus out. And like pointing out, you know, everything wrong with them and all that. But that's not what he did, was it? It's like, man, I'm not the bridegroom. I'm just a friend of the bride. He must increase. I must decrease. Therefore, my joy is full. 
And so, you know what? He was able to say, you know what? My joy is full. I did what I was supposed to do. That's got to be a good feeling. To know I did what I was supposed to do. It had to be a good feeling when Paul was able to say, I fought a good fight, I finished my course, I've kept the faith. I can't say that yet. Okay? I can't, I, 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 I do not feel like at this point in my life, in my ministry, I can say, I did it. That'd be a good feeling. But as, as much as I long for that feeling and to be able to say those words, today is not the day for me to say those words. But you know what? John got to see that day. Paul got to see that day. I want to see that day. You all ought to want to see that day and do whatever you got to do to get to that day because it's going to be worth it. And so Jesus, is, he literally picks up right where John left off and it says, for that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Exact same thing that John was preaching. Okay? And something I want to focus on as we go through this book is the subject of the kingdom of heaven. And so it's very important we understand exactly what this kingdom is because there's a lot of confusion on this subject. And so Jesus and John clearly preached that the kingdom was at hand, meaning it was about to come. I mean, it, it literally, I, I do not believe that when he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's like, well, actually 2,000 years later. I, I, I don't believe that. Okay? But now, if the kingdom did not come, Okay, we have to have a biblical explanation. Okay? And, but if it did come, we also need a biblical explanation. And so some te people teach that it didn't come and there's a 2,000 year gap because the Jews rejected. And I, I hate that I even have to address these things. But as fundamental Baptists, who associates with fundamental Baptists, we, we, I embarrassingly have to admit that many people who call themselves independent, fundamental, King James-only Baptists teach that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are two different things. They teach that the kingdom of heaven is for the Jews and that the kingdom of God is for believers. That is so dumb and it is so easy to disprove and we'll probably disprove a lot of that stuff as we go through this, but I, I, just, I cannot believe we have to address these things. Sunday morning, I'm going to be, I'm going to be showing two I'm going to be proving that the New Testament and the New Covenant are the same thing. And Baptists, not ones who aren't even Rachmanites, are teaching that you cannot conflate the New Testament with the New Covenant. That is so dumb. That is, that is, that is beyond dumb. And I don't know, it, it's borderline, if not full-blown heresy. It, it, it's probably full-blown heresy. And you know, maybe these people don't understand what they're saying, but it's bad. But these are the kind of things people are coming up with. So they teach there's a gap. And so it wasn't hand during that time. But because the Jews rejected, God decided he's going to go do some time with the Gentiles, have a church age. And then it's going to go back to being at hand after the rapture. Dumb, dumb, wrong, absolutely not true. But there's also those who teach that the kingdom of God, or, or there's some believe that Matthew, or, or I guess that, you know, the, so some believe that the kingdom of heaven, it's just spiritual, kind of like in the amillennial. And there's some that believe that it's just physical and that it's a millennial kingdom thing. But no, I, I, that's not what I believe. Okay. But some believe too, Matthew used a different title because Matthew is the only one that uses the term kingdom of heaven 
in, in Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, it's always kingdom of God. But, um, they, they say that because he was writing to the Jews, king, the kingdom of God title would have been offensive to them. I don't know for sure where that comes from. But here's the thing. There is absolutely nothing in the text to indicate there's a difference. Absolutely nothing. And, and I've read uh, many things that people have come with trying to show a difference, and they fall flat. I mean, they don't even come close. There's so more that disproves it. But I, obviously, I can't possibly teach all the details of what the kingdom of heaven is in one message, but we are going to cover this as we go through the chapter, we'll be dealing, or as we go through the, um, the book of Matthew. But there's nothing in this kingdom that we will learn about in Matthew that will contradict what we learn about in Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. Nothing. Anything that those guys say about the kingdom of God in those other books does not contradict anything Jesus says about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew. In fact, many times it says the exact same thing. Many times it's, it's quoting the exact same thing. And they just said kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God or Matthew said kingdom of heaven. So it's an absolutely ridiculous uh, interpretation. But let me give you a brief explanation of what I believe about the kingdom. So I believe that the kingdom did come in Jesus' day. And, and we will see where he literally said it had. Okay? But at the same time, too, we have all the promises of the kingdom right now spiritually. Okay? The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God came. It came and it smote the feet of that image and that Roman Empire, and it has, that stone has grown into a great mountain. It is like leaven, that it, and it's spread throughout the entire earth. And we are a part of that way over here in America. We are, we are preaching these things about the kingdom. We're preaching Jesus Christ. Why? Because the kingdom of God came, and millions have been saved throughout the last 2,000 years. And we are all a part of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And we have all of the promises. We can go and anything you can read about the kingdom, we have those things right now spiritually, including no death. Because again, if you're in the kingdom of heaven, do you ever die spiritually? No. We have eternal life and to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. So again, spiritually we have everything concerning the kingdom of heaven right now. But it is also my position that in the future, there will be a physical manifestation of the kingdom that we will experience. I believe that, I, I believe that is still to come. And so right, there's people who will try to put that distinction between the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. And they'll, they'll claim that the kingdom of heaven is for the Jews or it, it, um, you know, that the future manifestation of the kingdom is something that's about the Jews. But that's just absolutely ridiculous. It, the future manifestation is going to come from those who currently have the spiritual manifestation. A good way to illustrate this, and where we've kind of seen this in an opposite way, is with Adam. When Adam ate the forbidden fruit, God said, the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. And what happened? Adam ate the fruit, and he didn't die for another 930 years. Physically, but spiritually, he died on that day. That day, spiritually, he died. 
He spiritually was dead in his trespasses and sin. And yes, hundreds of years later, almost a thousand years later, he got the physical manifestation of that and he died. And so it's the same thing. When you got saved, you spiritually got eternal life. You spiritually got all the promises of the believer. We, but we only have those things spiritually. And one, but one of these days, we will have those things physically as well. Why? Because there's a regeneration coming one of these days. There's a resurrection coming one of these days. One of these days, this mortal is going to put on immortality and we will physically have all the things that we currently have spiritually. And so it's kind of, you know, it's, it's almost like, uh, you know, if I were to just, you know, if I had it, you know, if I, you know, if I had a million dollars that and I left it to my children, but I said it, it is yours, but you know, you're not able to, it's, it's kind of in a trust and you're not able to claim it. You're not able to use it until you hit a certain age. You know, technically it's theirs. Legally it's theirs. It's been promised to them. It's not going anywhere, but it's, but they don't actually get to physically get a hold of it. They don't get to use it until the time appointed by me who left it to them. And so when it comes to all of the promises that we still have yet to come, God has promised those things to us and they are, they are ours. They are ours right now. And spiritually, we have those things, but we won't physically possess those things until the day appointed by God. And he didn't tell us when that day would be. But it is, it is something that in fact will come. And so I, I believe uh, it is. It's, it's just like what we saw with Adam, except what he had was bad that was coming. What we have is good because things changed when the last Adam came and undid all the things that the first Adam did. And the first Adam immediately brought sin and death into the world. And that death is passed upon all men. And because all are you know, dead spiritually at some point in their life, they're going to die physically one of these days. But Jesus Christ, He brought life and He brought righteousness. When we believe on Him, we are born again spiritually and someday we will have the spirit, the physical manifestation of those things. We'll have the immortality. And so again, the amillennialist teaching that all things have already come concerning the kingdom, that's true. But the premillennialist teaching that the kingdom is still to come, that's also true. But both are wrong when they deny the present and when they deny the future fulfillment because there is some of both. And so here's where we get in this story, this last part of the story is where we're going to get a major glimpse into one aspect of the kingdom of heaven and what it is. Because folks, the kingdom of heaven has come. The kingdom of heaven is here. You and I who are saved, we are a part of the kingdom of heaven. And so notice what we're going to see here in verse 18. It says, And Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw two, other two brethren, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in a ship, with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. What's going on here? You know what? God needs fruit-bearing branches in His kingdom. He needs servants. He needs disciples. You know why? Because He has ordained 
that we bring forth fruit. God wants His kingdom to expand. God wants His kingdom to grow. Not so much with land. The earth is already His. God wants souls. God wants people. And so God told these men that were fishers of fish, He said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Why? Because God is going to use them to produce fruit. That's what God wants to do. That's what the kingdom is all about. It's about producing fruit. And in a short manner of time, Jesus is going to be leaving to go sit on the throne in heaven. That's where he is right now. Jesus right now is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He has ascended up to heaven. All, all power, all authority has been given to him. We'll see that when we get to Matthew chapter 28. All power and all authority is his. This world is his right now. Jesus, right now, he is the ruler of this world. Say, well, it doesn't really look like it. It doesn't really look like things are going his way. Hey, they're going to pay. They, these, these nations, these kings, this world is going to pay. They are going to be judged for their actions. You know why? Because their actions have been against God's laws. One of these days, these governments that have supported the butchering of babies, these governments that have supported the perverting of marriage and all these things, these governments that are allowing perverts to run rampant and just continue molesting people, continuing doing damage, just violating this land, one of these days, God is going to come and He is going to punish all of these people. You know why? Because they were violating the rules of His kingdom on His earth. And they're going to give an account. And you know what? His servants can say, my Lord delayeth is coming. And they can begin to smite the fellow servants and do all those things. But he is going to come one of these days and they are going to give an account. Because he is the king of the world right now. He is the rule of the world. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. And we ought to obey God rather than men. Because he is the one who's really in charge. He's the one in authority. And while we might get out of sorts with some of the self-proclaimed leaders that are on this earth, these people who are bad servants that are getting out of line according to God's laws, you know what? I'd rather be out of sorts with them than be out of sorts with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I would much rather have, I would much rather have that. And so understand, things like Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 5, where they're casting their crowns at His feet and all authority and power has been given to Christ, technically that's already happened. He already has all power and authority. He said that in Matthew chapter 28. And one of these days, uh, he's going to make sure everybody understands that that was the case. And they are going to give an account. And they're going to wail when they see him, when they see him that sitteth on the throne. Hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne. When they see the real boss one of these days, they're not, they're not going to be happy. And so, Jesus is recruiting these disciples because he is going to use these people to build his church. These 12 men, these fishermen, one of them's a publican, one of them's a Canaanite. He is going to use these men to basically to reform his church, to build his to build his church. And so like God always does, he's going to choose the foolish things to confound the wise. He didn't go to the nobles in Jerusalem. He didn't go to the Pharisees to get his disciples. He went to fishermen. He went to those that people didn't respect. Matthew, or uh, yeah, Matthew, the one who wrote this book, a publican, a tax collector, an IRS agent. We all know what we think about those guys. We think exactly the same that they did about publicans back then. Jesus picked him. And you know what? He wasn't, let me just say, 
after he followed Jesus, he wasn't working for the IRS anymore. Amen. You know, he, so just let's just keep that in mind right now. But God used them as fruit-bearing Christians. And, like, and see, he chose foolish things. And we will see throughout the Gospels, these were not the most impressive men. They make a lot of mistakes, especially Peter. But Peter is probably one of the most greatly used. But they had, these flawed men had a great God. And when the Holy Spirit took control of these men, their works were incredible. Folks, look at the difference between Peter right before the crucifixion, even after the crucifixion, and then just, what, 50 days later at Pentecost? Look at the difference. What happened? Holy Spirit. That's what happened. He got this filling of the Holy Spirit. He got, an empo- he got empowered by the Holy Spirit and it changed everything. And if we could get Christians to stop, and I preached about this the other day, focusing on yourself, and your abilities or lack thereof, and start focusing on the Holy Spirit that is within all of us, it'd be amazing what, not you can do, but what God can do through you. And let me tell you, when you see the stories of these disciples, and then we see the stories of them in Acts, it is not them. It's God. He gets the glory. And you know what? We've all seen enough of each other. I think by now we ought to know if we do anything, it's God that gets the glory, not us. And that's what God wants. He, he wants the glory. He deserves the glory. And we ought to make sure, we ought to make sure he gets it. And so it's clear from, so it's clear from the gospel, from the other gospels that too, you know, whenever you read Matthew, it looks like Jesus just walks up and meets these guys. Hey, you guys out there fishing. Come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Now, if we read the other gospels, well, this wasn't their first encounter with Christ. Okay. And, and some, um, they were, we can see from the other Gospels, not going to those Scriptures right now, they were familiar with the preaching of John. And some, were, some of them were actually disciples of John. We can see that from the other Gospels. But while these men clearly had no idea the extent of what they were getting themselves into, and Jesus confirmed that later. Remember when He said, I didn't tell you this in the beginning because I was with you, but I'm telling you now because I'm about to leave. Remember, and, and he he didn't tell them because they weren't ready yet. And keep that in mind too. Sometimes, you know, if God told us what was coming for us, I, I said this years ago at one of our anniversaries, and I meant it, and I still feel the same way. If God would have let me know everything I was going to get myself into pastoring a church, I probably wouldn't have done it. But at the same time, having gone through it all, I would do it again. But again. You talked to Tommy McMurtry in 2011 and said you're going to face this, 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 and this. I'd be like, yeah, forget that. I'm staying over here at Lighthouse. I like being a system pastor. But, again, now, but talk to me today. It's like, hey, if you had to do over again, would you do it again? Yeah, I'd do it again. But I, I, if you'd have told me what I was getting myself into back then, I wouldn't have done it. I, I have no doubt about that. And, and they were the same way. And so while these men, they didn't have any idea of the extent they did believe they were going to be a part of something really important. And they were. And it says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That is not a different gospel. And I hate that I even have to bring that up. And we might talk about that more later in the book. And healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria. And they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with divers diseases and torments 
and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee, and from Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, and from Judea, and from beyond Jordan. And these last few verses are really just giving a very brief summary of what Jesus was doing and how he got the attention of the multitudes. And it's important we understand exactly what's happening here because there are many things in the Gospels that people get very confused about. And there's a lot of weird teaching that people come up up with about the Sermon on the Mount. And, And while there are often too, some of the weird things people bring up about the Sermon on the Mount based on their dispensational theology... While there's elements of truth to what they will say, and we'll probably talk about some of that next week, they also leave out very important details that are really important and make everything make sense. And so how should we look at the Sermon on the Mount? Because that's what we're seeing here. Right here just briefly shows Jesus is doing a bunch of miracles. It doesn't go into the details, tell the stories like we see in some other places. But basically just showing a lot of people being reached. And then in the next few weeks, in the next few chapters... We're going to see that Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is preaching to a multitude. And so the question is, when Jesus is preaching to these multitudes, is this directly applicable to the New Testament church? Or was this still preaching that was for or under an Old Testament economy? What was Jesus trying to get across in that sermon that was not well received? And we will talk about that in the next week. So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord. I thank you so much for this wonderful chapter, the wonderful promises that we have in it. I pray, Lord, help us, Lord, to uh, learn from these things. And, Lord, we're thankful to be a part of this kingdom. And I pray, Lord, that you will help uh, this church to be a, a great fruit-bearing tree. I pray you'll help us as individuals to uh, just be good servants uh, in this kingdom and that, we'll be, that we will be instrumental in bringing many people to you. In your name we pray. Amen.